everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning. We're going to start a little differently today. Um, I think it's fair to say in a church this size that there's a lot that is walking into the room with you all today. And me too. Uh, So we're going to have just 60 seconds of silence. But the hope of this time is one of two things, or maybe both. You would begin this time, um, I hope that you're here partly because you're like, I just want to be with God. That's why I came to church today. So part of this time you can spend just talking with him saying, here's what's on my heart today. Here's what I need from you today. You might also choose to spend some of this time just listening to what he has for you today. But we're just going to do a little tiny dose here, just 60 seconds. uh, And I hope that this is a gift to you. So take this time and then I'll guide us forward from there. That's how much work it feels like it takes just in my own heart to slow it down and to be present and aware in the moment. I pray for all of us that are here today that these words that we're about to share together and the songs that we're going to get to sing together would be acts of comfort, would be invitations to a challenge but that in all things we would be keenly aware of your presence with us and around us and through us, and that this is not a cerebral exercise or even merely a spiritual exercise, but this is an infusion of your world into ours. Help us to pay attention well and to experience you well. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. A man sat in a metro station in Washington, D.C. and started playing the violin. It was a cold January morning. He played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes. And during that time, since it was rush hour, it was calculated that thousands of people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. Three minutes went by, and a middle-aged man noticed that there was a musician playing, so he slowed his pace. And he stopped for a few seconds, and then he hurried up to meet his schedule. A minute later, the violinist received his first dollar tip. A woman threw the money in the till and without stopping, continued to walk. 
A few minutes later, someone leaned against the wall and listened to him, but the man looked at his watch and started to walk walk again. Clearly, he was late for work. The one who paid the most attention was a three-year-old boy. His mother tagged him along, hurried, but the kid stopped and looked at the violinist. Finally, the mother pushed hard, and the child continued to walk, turning his head back the entire time. This action was repeated by several other children, actually. All the parents, without exception, forced them to move on. In 45 minutes, the musician played, and only six people stopped and stayed for a while. About 20 gave him money, but he continued to walk at their normal pace. He collected $32, and when he finished playing, the silence took over. No one noticed. No one applauded. Nor was there any recognition. No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the best musicians in the world. He played one of the most intricate pieces ever written on a violin worth $3.5 million. Two days before his playing in the subway, Joshua Bell had sold out a theater in Boston, and on average, he earns just over $1,000 per minute for his work. Joshua Bell, playing incognito in the metro station, was organized by the Washington Post as part of a social experiment about perception, taste, and the priorities of people. The outlines were, in a commonplace environment, in an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? Do we stop to appreciate it? Do we recognize the talent in an unexpected context? One of the possible conclusions from this experience could be, if we do not have a moment to stop, and listen to one of the best musicians in the world playing the best music ever written. How many other things are we missing? This is an article published by the Washington Post several years ago, and it has just always stuck with me. It's like, man, have I been there? <laughs> have I walked through a subway station like that where something incredible is happening and I missed it? And I'm convinced that the answer is yes. And I think that stopping for beautiful music is one thing, but I think there are actually even better things that we might be missing all the time. And it just begs this question, what are we paying attention to? Our story today that we're going to jump into in our study in the book of Acts today hones in on a couple of guys who were listening really well. And without further ado, I want to jump into this story. But as I read it, if, if you're a visual learner and you need to see the words on the screen, for sure, they'll be on the screen. You can follow along. But there is so much imagery in this story. For those that are willing, I would invite you to close your eyes or maybe just keep them open. But I want you to imagine this story. Can you put yourself in the place where this is happening? Can you see the people who are there? What do they look like? What's their hair color? What position is their body in? And we're going to pull this story apart piece by piece together as we go. It goes like this. Acts chapter 3 is our text for today. And just the first half of it tells us this. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple, called the Beautiful Gate, so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John. And they said, look at us. 
and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's portico, utterly astonished. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, you Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you have handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Whoa. I think this is one of those stories that depending on your posture and what you believe to be true, you read and you go, nice story. Kind of sounds like a fairy tale. Or it's one of these stories that causes you to lean in differently and you go, how? How is this possible? For some, this is easy to believe. But I think if we really want to understand what's going on in this passage, there's four big things I would say, oh man, let's just for a moment pause and look a little bit more closely at that and what that means. And my hope is by the end of really exploring this passage that there's more that comes out for us that we go, wow, wherever I was before, I am engaging this story a little bit differently. And the four things that we're going to look at here are this idea of the temple, this particular man who's been healed, the prayers that were prayed that are hiding in this text, and then finally this sermon that happens at the end. So, in order, we'll take this piece by piece. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon. To begin wrapping our heads around this passage, it's so important that we understand what's a temple what does a temple do? Why were they going there? And this is a place in Acts where we are still hyper-focused on this Jewish people. It is Jewish culture. Everything is Jewish. So if you're Jewish going to a temple, you have to understand right away there's one temple. In this story, in Jerusalem, there is one place, only one place where this could be. And this is a temple that has been there for hundreds of years. And this temple has been used for some pretty specific purposes. Generally, a temple is a location to experience God's generosity and his healing presence. That's the primary function. Now, the way that that will look 
why would we go to a temple? It's a place to be in community with God. This is a physical reminder that the God of these Jews, he had a story that he loved to tell. And one of the main ingredients of this story is, I want to be with you. Not, not above you, like with you, in your midst. I want you to build for me in the Old Testament. As you're traveling around as this nomadic group, I want you to build a tent for me too. And I want to travel around with you. The temple was this representation that God wants to be with us. The temple was also a place where forgiveness would happen. This would sometimes look like coming, uh, coming through offerings that people would give, animal sacrifices. Sometimes this would look like ritual washings or cleansings that they would do where they would physically wash with water. But the idea was get clean <clears throat> inside and out. You are forgiven and made new again. That would happen at the temple. You would celebrate what God had given you when you went to the temple. Last week, we talked about this uh, festival of Shavuot, this idea that, man, the first crops are growing. We're going to take the first 10% of these to the temple and just celebrate. God gave us food again this year. And one thing that I misunderstood, especially as a kid growing up, is I thought that when you took sacrifices to a temple or food like that to a temple, you would lay it on an altar and you would like burn it to a crisp. Like that was, that was my understanding. If that's your understanding, I, I understand how you got there. I think that's just represented in a lot of different cultures. In this culture, you would bring that food, it would be cooked, and then it would be consumed by everybody there. Priests, the folks who were in the crowd, everybody would get in on this action. It was amazing. Food with gratitude would maybe be the best way to sum up that idea of what we do at the temple. And finally, what would we do there? You'd you'd remember God's story, and you'd remember our story with him. This is what you do. And you you can see as we go through all of these different functions and purposes of a temple, there's these two things that are happening in conjunction, in rhythm. When you go to a temple, you receive and you respond. And those are very important that they both go together. So now, this is where it starts to get a little interesting with our story in Acts 3. Historically, God's presence in the temple has looked a very particular way. The idea of this temple got started back in the Old Testament when these people were nomadic. He said, I want you to build a tent for me. But that tent, there was this pillar of fire that would move during the nighttime. And that's how that the people of Israel would know where God's presence was. And when it wasn't moving, when he wasn't taking them to a new spot, it would just come into this tent, this tabernacle, it was called, that had been built for him. And during the nighttime, it was fire. During the daytime, all you would see is the smoldering smoke around it. But that was an undeniable, that's where God's presence is. Anytime you see fire descending, anytime you see a cloud filling a room, you have the ingredients of a temple. Now, we got a really funny story from Luke just last week, and I want to take us back. I'm just going to read about a verse and a half here, but to point out one other big thing that we didn't have time for last week, watch how Luke describes what has just happened to John and Peter in the story right before this one. He says this in chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly, from heaven, 
there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues of fire appeared among them, and they rested on each of them, and all were filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're Jewish and you're hearing this story, right away you're going, that's temple. That's what God has done for generations, for thousands of years in his temple. There is a physical building that he has done this in. What on earth is going on? Because now this singular pillar of fire, this image of God's presence with us just split into pieces. And now it's gone into people. God's temple just moved location. This is an amazing story because now as we catch up to chapter three, I've got to think that Luke's giggling a little bit. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple. Well, you've got temples going to the temple. That's just kind of funny if you're a Jewish writer. But these guys, like things have shifted on a dime. They now, if you want to be in God's presence, if you want to know what he's like, you don't go to a place anymore. You go to a people Luke is having some fun here. So, what happens at a temple? We're going to circle back at that. But that now is happening with these people not in the physical building anymore. Okay, let's shift gears and just talk about this man for a minute. I love this guy. Just the image that Luke as the writer in Acts gives us. He's, it's just so vivid. At the hour of prayer, you can just see his friends bringing him to the front of this temple and just dropping him at the gate where they know he's going to beg all day. We hope as his friends that he gets enough money to make ends meet, at least for the next week. We can try and help him patch it together, but the dude's feet and ankles have been messed up for a long time. It begins to introduce a problem that we're going to have in this story and in many stories that we see in Scripture, and it's the problem of healing. Why hasn't God healed him yet? What's he been waiting for? And I think it's very particular that Luke, as the writer, is pointing out, what's he asking for as he sits at the doors of this temple? Is he asking to be healed? Not anymore. He's, he's just asking for money at this point. I wonder at this guy's life. Early on, Whenever this problem happened, maybe it was when he was a kid, maybe it was a farming accident in this culture, we don't know. But at what point did he, did he stop asking to be healed and, and just start asking for physical things? And I love here too, Peter's first words that he says to him, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, I freely give to you. Now, it's another play that Luke is doing here because any time in the Old Testament, the vast majority, when you see the words silver and gold show up, they are almost always in reference to the temple. So Peter, as a new temple, is walking up to this guy saying, I am not the old temple. I do not have all of that fancy stuff. You know what I do have? I've got the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and I believe in it. Peter is, has got some real swagger here. He's got a real confidence that he actually has something to offer. And obviously, he's somebody who thinks that he has something to give because he thinks that he has received something. 
I want to pause for a minute on this, and we're going to circle back on this at the end. What's your swagger like with that? Particularly those of you that say, I would call myself a follower of Jesus. Do you have a swagger? Because you know that you've received something, and now you have something to give away. What does that look like for you? And this is an unusual story because in the stories even of Jesus that we have, Jesus will often ask a question of the person, something like, do you want to get well? Or what do you want? Or what can I do for you? Peter doesn't do that. He just walks up to this guy and says, hey, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to heal you in the name of Jesus. Are you ready? Go. And like this guy, I'm sure, is just completely bewildered in this moment. He's confident in what he is doing. Okay. We're going to shift gears to this third piece, this prayer that's hiding in plain sight. I want to show you a little bit of what's going on physically in the story. However you imagine it as we were going, I just wonder, this is what the temple would have looked like back in the day. Um, And this is the actual temple itself. So we're going to come back to this. But to really catch the picture, I think you need to see, here's what the whole, it's called the Temple Mount, would have looked like back in the day. It was much bigger. Give me that next slide. Yep. So the picture we just saw is just this part right in the middle. Now we're looking at this whole, really, stadium that surrounds it. But this is like 40 football fields as you're looking. This is just a massive, massive structure. So we're going to begin our story in Acts 3 with Peter and John going up through the Shoshan Gate right at the bottom. They walk into this courtyard, and the first thing that they're going to come to, give me this next slide, is the Gate Beautiful. This is the entrance to the temple itself. This is the place where this dude's friends would grab him and drop him off every day, hoping that he'd get enough money to make it by. Now, the reason they drop him there is because that was as far as he was allowed to go. You couldn't be cripple or lame and go further into the temple than this. It was just some of the rules that existed at the time you were kicked to the outside. And there's a goodness in that, but also a grief to be held out, especially from the culture and the community and the worship, the time with God, to be told, wait on the outside of the door. Man. Now, the timing is important, and we can gloss over this real quick, but one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, Luke, who's the writer, is very clear about these specific details. When were they going? Well, they were going for the hour of prayer. That could mean three different times, because at the temple, you would go up for prayer at 9 a.m., noon, or 3 Peter doesn't, or Luke doesn't just want you to know they went up for prayer. He wants you to know they went particularly for the three o'clock service. That's when this is happening. And there's two really cool things that happen at the three o'clock prayer service. The first is that when you go in for this service, there's a particular prayer that you pray. It's called the Amida. And this is a prayer that you pray standing up. Amida literally is translated the standing prayer. And it's a prayer that you pray quietly. It usually has 12 to 13 steps that you go through, but they cover prayers to God, requests to God, and gratitude to God. During this prayer, sins are, forget- are confessed and forgiven. And I want to begin connecting some dots. 
Because this guy, for the first time, was minding his own business, asking for money outside the temple at the Gate Beautiful. When all of a sudden, this guy, Peter, bum rushes him and just says, we're going to heal you up and we're going to go inside. So they go from here. Give me this next picture. They go into this first courtyard. This is probably the first time, at least in years, that this guy has been inside this temple. Give me the next slide here. So they go inside, and this guy, his mind must just be blown. I cannot believe that I'm here. I am closer to the presence of God than I've ever been in my life. And then they go a step further because he's a Jewish man, and that means that they can go one more right up to this center house. Now, this house here, this holy place, this is where this fire would be, the smoke and the flame, the image of the presence of God. And this is where the standing prayer would be said together in silence. And I just, I just would love to have watched this guy from across the room as for the first time standing on feet and ankles that have been broken for years, saying the standing prayers together in a community that he's not been allowed to be in, in a place that he has been rejected from for years. Can you just wrap your head around how much of the embrace of God that he's feeling in this moment, this dude is being restored. So you would go in at the three o'clock prayers and you would pray the standing prayer together and then, unique to the 9 a.m. and the 3 o'clock service, there's one other really interesting detail. This would be the, the service where a lamb would be sacrificed. And this would be the part of the service where we'd talk mostly about confessing sin and knowing that sin was being forgiven. And then this lamb would be killed in the presence of all of these people. It's a really interesting scene when you stop to consider What's going through the minds of Peter and John? They would watch that lamb be killed, and they knew that it was actually a symbol for something greater. Imagine Peter, when he saw Jesus killed, the, the, he just shut up and he ran away scared. But look at him now. You can't get this guy to shut up now. I, I just watched that as they're finishing this prayer, Peter is so excited. They just go marching out of this temple, and Peter is so passionate to let people know, hey, it's not about the sheep anymore. There has been a sacrifice. It has forgiven sins, but it's something so much bigger than what we just saw in there. It's not about a sheep. It's about Jesus of Nazareth. And then finally, our fourth vignette as we look at this story is this sermon. It's really cool that Luke makes sure to point out for us. They were all the way inside. This would be a great spot to stop in the middle of this ceremony and to turn to everybody and say, let me explain what's going on real quick. But instead, give me this next slide, they leave. They go out of the temple. They go all the way out of the gate, beautiful, right past the spot where this guy used to sit every day asking for alms. Give me that next picture. They go all the way out into this massive arena, couple more, through that gate, all the way over now to Solomon's portico. And this is basically like a huge outdoor gazebo. Now, this is a time in the year where and again, at this point in, in Acts, everything is so focused on the Jewish people. This part of the temple area would just be teeming with Jewish folks, people who are trying to understand what's been going on. 
They don't give this sermon. Peter doesn't say these words when they're all the way in this temple where things get exclusive, where some people don't get to hear. He makes certain that he does it all the way out, all the way out on the outer edge so that the many Jewish folks, the men and the women, even folks who are thinking about converting would be the, the ones that were wanting to be there on purpose. They would be the ones. Everybody would get to hear this message. And then what do we hear? It's all about Jesus. This is not about some special power that Peter has been given or John has been given. This is not even a message that's about this particular guy who's been healed. Everything that Peter does, he redirects back to Jesus. You have to understand this story. He died. He was resurrected. He's been, and, and this story, as they're looking at this man, becomes a reason for folks to want to lean in and believe. It's as if Peter's saying, look, he's been sitting at this temple forever, but he engaged our temple just now. Decide for yourselves which temple brings healing. Where is God's presence today? He's given him perfect health in the presence of you all. So what needs healing? We're going to continue on. I wanted to just read a little bit more of Acts 3 to really round out this message that Peter's going to preach. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 17, just three more verses. And it says this. This is Peter talking. And now, friends, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you. That is Jesus. We get a really simple gospel here. The God of the universe came down in love. We didn't recognize it. In fact, we killed him. But God raised him back to life, and now he's being kind and merciful and gracious to us. He healed this guy. He can heal you too. The word repent here that shows up, I love to translate as turn around and come back home. But it's best translated in this context as change your mind or change your paradigm or change the way you think. Peter's getting at this idea that God is different than you think. So what needs to be changed? What needs healing? Maybe it's how lost we are. He uses the word ignorant, but the fact that God himself would show up and that we are so incapable of seeing what's actually good that we killed him, maybe that needs to be healed in each of us. Maybe it's our image of God that needs healing. Because sometimes we can be so easily convinced that he's angry with us, that he's waiting to smack us on the knuckles with a ruler for all the bad stuff that we've done. But here we see words like, and now, friends, you're forgiven. He's refreshing. And he ends with this idea that he's not done with us, this God, that he's coming back, that his rescue mission is still not done, this relentless love of you and me. And I love that this is all coming from Peter. This is a person who's putting on display things that a temple does. And just to remind us, Peter's putting on display God's generosity and his healing presence. He's reminding others that God wants to be with them and they can be with him. 
He's offering forgiveness, a way to get clean inside and out. He's celebrating what God has given him, generosity. I'm freely giving what's been given to me. He's remembering God's story and his story and his people's story. And you just begin to see in this guy this rhythm of receive and respond, receive and respond. So what's the point of all this? First off, I just want to circle back. We have a problem in this story, this problem of healing. What do we do with this? I can't tell you how many times I've prayed for a friend or a family member or a stranger who's sick. And that prayer was, God, heal this person. And it doesn't happen. What do you, what do, you do with that? And I've had conversations with enough of you to know I'm not the only one praying those prayers and also bewildered at the result. What do we do with stories of healing? What must this story have been like for Luke, who's the author? Luke, by trade, was a doctor. Luke would have wanted to harness stories like these. He would have berated Peter and John with questions. How did this go? Take me through the steps. I meet so many patients that in my own Hippocratic oath, I want to make sure that I treat them the very best way possible. And if there's a way to heal as a doctor, how do you do this? And I've got to think for him, there would also be an internal struggle of what would it be like to know that the God of the universe can but he not always does. We have to begin by seeing that miracles are regular be, regularly being done to expose a deeper spiritual reality at a specific point in time to a particular group of people or both. Do we need to be cautious with stories like these? I don't think so. We need to be thoughtful, but not cautious. If we're thoughtful, I think we'll see that these stories of healing don't happen every day. Not even for Peter and John are these stories happening every day. But God uses certain circumstances when he wants to, but he does not always do it, nor is it ours to wield like a lightsaber. But the point is to reveal this deeper spiritual reality. It is a means to an end. And if you are at a point in time or with a group of people where that deeper reality is already exposed, revel in it. You have arrived at the point of what miracles are for to begin with. And I think the bigger point here is that we must remain both open and obedient if and when he says heal. Most of the time, I think that we're willing to be obedient but we're rarely open enough to hear. Rarely have we taken the time to listen. And I don't say that to guilt or shame, but rather to bring an invitation to all of us to pursue more openness in silence and solitude, practices that we covered earlier this year in our study of the ruthless elimination of hurry. And as I look at Peter and John, I just want to highlight for us, they received first they were wizards at listening. I don't think that it was just their time that they had spent physically with Jesus. I don't even think that it was particularly about the fact that they were there at this day of Pentecost in Acts 2. These guys were going up to prayer at 3 p.m. The chances are high that they were also there at 9 a.m. and at noon. They listened multiple times a day. And because of that, the chances are good that if they were listening every now and again, they would hear 
do we believe that we have something to offer? Do we drop people off at the doorstep of heaven or do we think that we can take them all the way in? I have a friend who this week was sharing a story. Uh, She had a neighbor who lost her young husband and it was a brutal story and she was over one afternoon just being with her and as she was leaving, she knew that faith was not a part of their story but she just turned to this friend and said, can I pray for you? And her friend was like, yeah, of course. She said, like right now, and it was a very serious moment in the room all of a sudden. She just closed her eyes, and she held her friend's hand, and she prayed for her, and she said, I said I meant, and I looked up, and my friend is just weeping. And it's led to some conversations since then that we probably wouldn't have had otherwise. I just didn't have the guts to pray for her before. And I'm sad about that now, because she really needed those prayers in the times that her husband was getting more and more sick. Let me bring out the band as I end with just a couple closing thoughts. The invitation today is more than to simply observe God like we would a violinist in a subway. If we stopped to enjoy, it would do us good, but then we'd move on with our lives, spectators at best. But we're not invited to be spectators to what God is doing. We're invited to receive it, to listen to it, and in listening, be moved to respond. This God, he speaks, he nudges, he's still on a mission, and he's wanting to speak to you and to us. He's inviting us all the time, not just to enjoy him, although he is, but he's inviting us to join him, and if we don't stop and listen, We might find ourselves screwing around and taking up the broken pieces of others and certainly ourselves right up to the steps outside the temple and dropping them there. We need more than that, and the world needs more than that. We are all in desperate need of people in our lives who have the audacity to say, look at me, come with me. People who are willing to show us how to experience God's presence and how they live. People who do what a temple does. People who would express in their very lives God's generosity and his healing presence. People who would remind each other and the world around that God wants to be with us and who would take the time to want to be with him. People who are known for their forgiveness, their grace, and for all the ways they express to each other and to those around that this is a place where you can get clean inside and out. Physical needs, yes. Relational needs, yes. Spiritual needs, we're here for you. The people who celebrate what God has given to them. Food, hospitality, generosity, a culture that loves to give away what they have. And finally, a people who consistently tell stories so that they remember God's story and their own story so that they never forget his power and his presence. We are invited to be temples. Temples that move out into the world. Temples that receive and respond and who believe in their most basic attitudes, that when they walk out of the doors of a church building, that the church has only just begun for the week. For now, in this moment, I'm gonna invite us all to a really beautiful practice. We're gonna get to sing. 
today, maybe more than normal, I would invite you to something unique. Take it in. It's a gift of community. What we're about to do, you're going to be a part of something here, something healing, something that's generous. I want you to revel in the fact that you are a part of a community that is pointed directly of heaven, directly to heaven, seeking to embody this idea of the temple, not just here, just on Sunday mornings, but that church begins when you walk out those doors today. Revel and enjoy these moments in community here and take the fire out into the world that desperately needs it. Let's stand and sing together.